Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Uh, This week's episode is another that we've recorded uh, remotely during lockdown. Uh, So keep that in mind while you're listening. But it also does mean that we have... uh, Recorded the conversation like we did with all our stay-at-home festival morning shows. And if you are a behind-the-scenes tiered supporter on the Book Shambles Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles, you can also watch this week's episode, which means that at about halfway through, instead of just hearing Robin's laptop die and him fumbling about, you can watch him fumbling about as his laptop dies. (laughs) And if that was not enough incentive to join our Patreon, uh, remember Patreons also get extended editions of each and every episode of Book Shambles, uh, lots of other goodies as well, bonus uh Shows like the Shambles Show and Tell Shows each week are the guests on this week with Chris Addison and Rebecca Front, a kind of thick of it reunion. Uh, Next week, Alice Roberts will be on the show. We've also had Nitin Sawney and Ross Noble on recently. So patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. So our guest this week is the author Dina Niyari talking to us from her home in Paris. Uh, Her new book, The Ungrateful Refugee has just come out, which is her story about coming to America with her family as refugees from Iran. So make sure you check that out. It's a great book uh, available now uh, from all the independent bookshops that you would like to go and investigate. And so here we go. Here is this week's episode. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, Josie, hello, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Our, our, our guest today is um, has has written. Well, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's a fascinating and and important memoir of of uh, of, of part of her life. Uh, we are joined joined by uh, Dina Nyanyeri. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Now, this Thanks so much for coming. Before we get to the book, just before we started recording, Dini, we were, uh, Josie was talking about the fact that every time that we're about to record is after spending a whole day of sat in her office going, I can't think of anything to write, nothing will come out. The last five minutes before she knows she has to do that, that's when 20,000 words appear in her head. (laughs) 20,000 words is a bit much, but you know what we're saying. (laughs) I just thought I'd make it as dramatic as this is Irwin Allen's towering inferno of writer's block that I'm creating here. Um, do you find, do you find this in, in, in your writing process? Do, do you have a process that allows you to just go, right, um, you know, the Graham Greene method, which we always talk about, wake up, here's your thousand words, I'm off for the rest of the day. Or 
do, are you a battler as well? Do you have to really uh, fight no, it? No, I'm, I'm much more like Josie. I, I think um, I've learned to um, understand this part of myself so much over the years that I never start anything too early because, you know, the, the pressure is inspiring. And, and also it does always happen that way. Something comes and then, you know, you have to be pulled away soon. So this is why I have some like fail safes. I have my, um, you know, voice memos on my phone. So if it's five minutes before, and 20,000 words comes, I just kind of like scream them while pacing into the voice memo. <laughs> and then, and then um, I, and, and I try to get as many of them out as I can. And then um, also just booklets and booklets of notes and, and things like that. But, you know, I try, I guess, I try to have that time every day that, you know, is creative time, but you can't force creativity. I mean, it comes sometimes when it comes. I mean, there've been times where actually two of my best pieces of fiction were both mostly imagined on hikes, huh. you know? Yeah, and not, and not even alone, hikes with, you mm. know, other people, with with my, um, you know, uh, with my friends, and, you know, we were talking about some other piece of work, and then, uh, and then something comes. So that's, um, yeah, so I, I try to make room for the spontaneous too. But I, I find it so inspiring. It, it's something about the fact that your whole body is engaged in this repetitive thing, that you're outside and it's like your brain is finally just free to sort of make its connections. And then speaking with someone else is so useful because you're not looking at them the whole time. You're sort of in your little world and they're interacting with you. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're imagining together and there's no, you know, and I think there's so many of the trappings of modern day life that get in the way of imagination, especially our phones and our devices. And, and you know, it's actually kind of a shame that we have to write on these devices. I like how fast I can write on my computer. I can't write that fast by yes. hand. But, but the thing is that um, the, the, the device is also constantly trying to get in the way, you know. Um, and I'm not just talking about, you know, notifications and the Internet, but I just think there's something about focusing on it versus all of the tangible visceral kind of like sensory parts of this world that get in the way and, and I think when you're hiking with someone and talking you both get into your five senses and then memories come and then associations come through the physical and you know the best writing is rooted in the physical and the five senses so um that's that's why I find it so inspiring that's it is, thing as well. no no but I've never I've never explicitly heard that sort of that notion that yeah that the best stuff does connect ex uh, explicitly again, but does connect to um physical senses and of course yeah well, well, and they, even, they even it even comes down to, to the sentence level you know when you think of you're writing your first terrible sentences and before you revise and it's all just very abstract words isn't it it's all adjectives and adverbs and and then only when you think of that that perfect simile like you know the, as they said thisness of that and the thatness of this and connect these physical things to each other does the writing the sentences actually become good right and in, and then you read it over and you realize oh you know this is all tangible it's all visceral and then and then that's when I stop editing but you always start elsewhere and I think um it, it's hard to keep you know that connection without having your body in the physical world too you know which is what made lockdown by the way so freaking difficult on creativity like I don't know about you guys did you feel that way yeah truly because you're stuck and and also I don't want to live my life through the virtual you know through virtual things and 
it's been something that actually prior to lockdown I was trying so hard to extricate myself from and then I just found myself like straight back into old habits like straight back into living via a screen and it's not living it's not living yeah yeah exactly exactly it does have its little joys sometimes but yeah I totally agree with you I I yearn for a life without you know when well and it's not that I want to get away from the screen I want everyone else to get away too so that I can have them mm. without the screen do you know what I mean and 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 of course we can't have that anymore but the the upside of that is that I had a birthday in lockdown and everyone showed up on zoom across the world I mean isn't that lovely yeah, that's nice. <laughs> I, I think that might have been better than the other version as well because there's no tidy everyone has to tidy up their own house after the party <laughs> you don't have to tidy up your you know there's a kind of um yeah but I, I, the the thing that I was thinking is that what I think has been really good and also very grounding in, in a physical sense has been going on the same walk or nearly the same walk or going to the same little places with my daughter. I've never be before been as observant of this tree is in flower. This tree will be in flower. These baby swans I see every day, you know, it has been very good to sort of observe on a very small level. And I think that is really good. But, oh, my God, I'd love to just see the sea. I want to see the sea. Um, it's, where it's about we missed. I'm in Paris. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, it was actually interesting because they, first of all, they had a very tough lockdown here. And we just actually, today's our first day where it's completely removed. Restaurants are open, et cetera. But oh starting God. from March 17th, we had this police enforced lockdown where you had to have a, um, an attestation to say every why you were out every time you went out and you had to put your address and be within a kilometer you had to put the time you left be within an hour and there were only four or five reasons you could be out and um, so it was really restrictive and we were just kind of stuck in the same circles but one of my friends here was stuck in a neighborhood in which they had actually begun filming a World War II film so all of the streets were transformed to like, you know, Vichy France, like Paris under the occupation. You know, the, there were, you know, cars and things. I don't know if they removed the cars and things from the time, but there were definitely like signs in all of the windows that said things that were really kind of apt for the times now. They said things like, you know, no supplies closed for now or, you know. Oh yeah. And so, and but they were, you know, in the 1940s script and, and print and all that. And, and it was eerie. She said every time she went for a run, she felt like you know, this tightness in her chest because of what it evoked, you know, and how similar it was, you know, to, to I suppose, um, the feeling of being confined, even though, of course, we're not in anywhere near that kind of situation. Yeah. yeah. Also, that's almost too real, isn't it? it it's sort of, it's, it's like, it would lead me to questioning reality. I'd be mm -hmm. a little bit like, no, no, this is too on the nose. Something like, always question reality. Like the Truman Show or something. Like someone's doing yeah. an experiment. <laughs> yeah, like Westworld or something. Uh, I hear you, yeah. Well, we must we must talk about your book, uh, your latest one, The Ungrateful Refugee, which is a, a memoir of, of your experience of being a refugee uh, leaving Iran. Um, and well, the first thing I wanted to say, but before we get into the, the details of the book, returning to that period of your life returning to those uh, that that emotion and the battles you had how much did you find as you were writing it that you would suddenly it would be like neurons firing and going oh that memory has been kept for you know that that's just not be in terms of as you built it up did you find yourself going 
there's a whole rush of things which I had entirely detached from 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 my life. Yes, no, I, I absolutely did, and in some ways, I tri- I tried to trigger that myself because you know you can sit and think and think and think, and and um, you know certain things will come up, but not necessarily everything that you need, and and sometimes you need to go to uncomfortable places. And one of the things that I did is I picked up a book by Bill Rohrbach called Writing Life Stories. Have you guys read that? It's for memoirists, and it's it's so wonderful. I mean, he talks about his own experiences of of um, you know in his life and teaching these classes, but also he gives all of these exercises about how to trigger memory like there's one that's called the maps exercise where you draw a map of a particular neighborhood and you label it down to the like this is the place where I would you know share candy with so and so or this is the place we would meet up after and you just label and label and label until the whole place comes to life like a movie and it works and I found that to be the case um, and 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 also you know I went digging into albums and any videos I talked to my parents I talked to anyone who was around and there were things that were coming back into my imagination and memory that were distorted or wrong or from a different time and I had to kind of put those back into order and then of course like there was visiting the refugee camps and when I would go back to the camps of today there's just so much that comes back even despite the differences you know there's just so much about being told to wait and being confined to a space so living you know in that particular moment of limbo um, that of course never changes and so that brought back a lot of detail a lot of like visceral physical detail so that in the book because I didn't want to say just things like you know it was hard <laughs> you know I wanted to, I wanted to talk about the tastes and the smells and, and 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 everything you know that embeds in the memory so long-winded answer is that yes <laughs> no we, we don't we don't mind long-winded answers we like them the uh <laughs> <laughs> I, I, quite early on in the book, you you use a word which uh, I think f- seemed to it, it felt incredible punch for it, which is when you talk about being unmoored, when you talk about this th- that that sense, and 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 it comes across in the early stages when you're talking about being in Italy. That, as you were just saying, you, you're you're given a time for everything. This is when you do this. This is when you're allowed to do this. You you, you the the loss of security, and I think that. Can you tell us a little about? what for you that sense of being unmoored is? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was so much more than being, you know, unmoored from place. It was being unmoored from who you were, you know, being kind of broken from an old identity. Because the thing is, yes, we had, you know, a house and family and, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles and children and people all around us that were part of our community that we had left behind. But it wasn't just about that. You know, it was um, my parents were doctors, you know, and my mother was a doctor. And so much of her identity came from the fact that she was, you know, this very, very smart girl who had done very well in school and had made a practice for herself and was trusted in the community. And I was a child of like respected people in the community. So for us to come out and then, um, for so much of what we had taken for granted to be taken away, you know, the respect, the, the, the love, the, the, you know, being asked for things like being asked for advice, being asked for our help as if we had power and strength, that was all completely gone. Of course, now we were receiving charity. Now people were like shouting at us as if we were stupid just because we had an accent, you know, now there was this loss of like the, the place in the world. And so I think that on mooring, I felt a lot more strongly that at, at that time than say just being pulled away from Iran or those particular foods or those particular people. I think this kind of more of a the lo- loss of dignity 
followed me um, into the West and to, to our home where we ended up. We ended up in the U.S. in Oklahoma. And so, and it, it just, I think, I think it's still even there now. You know, I, like, I still feel after, you know, at 40 years old and I feel like I've accomplished some things, um, you know, I still am making up for the fact that, you know, we were a respected medical family and then we were refugees. Do you remember at what points that you had that sensation where you went, well, we were the Nyeris and now we're some refugees that, mm-hmm. that, 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 as you were saying before that, that loss of, of, of identity. Yeah. I mean, in Italy, one of the things that I remember there was this moment where um, the charities came. So we, we, we were in this refugee camp that was made out of a husk of an old hotel, you know, and it was um, it, it, this hotel owner. By the way, I went back in 2011 and visited this place and actually talked to the very elderly owner. And he said that for two or three years around that time, he had rented out the place to the government and they used it as a refugee camp. So all that was left was kind of the husk of the hotel with none of the amenities. It was the the, the like, you know, sheets and the food, that stuff was, you know, provided by the government and it was from the refugee camp. But we were kind of in the husk of this thing. It was kind of pretty. And and it was on top of a hill. And we arrived and there were people from all of these different countries and, and all of them were in between. And they were mostly political refugees. And many had higher degrees and were smart and were involved in political things. And, and we were all just kind of sitting there baffled by what would happen. And then this charity would roll through and um, they would dump these truckloads of old used clothes just into the parking lot and we were expected to dig through them and look for things. And it was so undignified and so shameful. And even though a lot of us did actually have that need, we, um, my mother refused. She said, you know, no, thank you. And then there was, we were, we were Christians. That's why we had escaped. There was a local church that came and, you know, they would offer canned goods and things like that in order for you to come to their you know, church. And we're like, mm, we're not going to do that either. Even though we believe the same thing you believe, that's mm-hmm. a little bit undignified, you know, and these things that made you less, you know, drove you kind of into the ground. Charity tends to do that if you do it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think for us, and, and then of course there was the waiting that the, just the, the indignity of waiting, the power being exerted upon you when you're being made to wait in order to even start a life. I think that actually gets, you know, into the refugee psyche so so much more than anything else now i was talking to a refugee the other day who said you know why uh detention or camp is worse than prison because in prison you count your days down in camp you you count your days up there is no knowing when it will end and um and and so um and i think one of the best things that happened to us is that my mother refused to wait you know she she said we're going to occupy ourselves we're going to learn english we she went and got all of these used workbooks from a local um homeschooling group of homeschooling americans um who uh, and she erased all of the workbooks just kind of like so much that you know her fingers went raw but we um you know we couldn't see the answers and so we could do the workbooks and keep up with school and and, and that sort of thing so, um, you know, I think I, I think not everyone, you know, does that. Not everyone is in the mental space to do that. Um, but that saved us from, I think, a lot more agony than we might have suffered. Well, it's so interesting what circumstances like that bring out of different people, because nobody can predict how they might respond to that circumstance. And, you know, different personality types are so different, you know, the experiences that led up to it. Yeah. 
No, it's true. You know, I think the thing that made my mother able to do that is because she the, the, just the great power of her belief. And my mother, you know, we, we left because she was a convert. She had converted from, from Islam to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And she believed with her whole heart. And I think one of the things I struggle with in the book, too, is that I, I am... I, I no longer believe, I, I don't think I believe in a God. I mean, I, I don't know. I struggle with this question, but certainly I don't believe like in some of the things that she believes in. And I, I, I'm not religious. And I, but I see how being, um, you know, such a believer like that actually saved us because it was her belief that caused her to say, no, it's not going to be long. No, my children's lives will not be wasted in this camp. And I will, have it be so. And actually, in the end of the day, the strength of her belief is what got us out because, you know, the asylum interview is brutal and they check everything. And and my mother raised us as Christians. And so when they pulled us apart and asked us all these questions about the Bible and, and what we know, what they were able to see is that we were children who were actually raised in the Christian religion. So I, I, um, I don't know. This is one of my, my own struggles, isn't it? And, and the, the, just the way that we were we were saved from a lot of damage and from, you know, being sent back. You know, my mother calls them miracles. <laughs> I don't. But. but that is, I mean, to be a child, to be as young as you were, and then to be be taken away to have these tests. I mean, this is something that I still find uh, very uh, hard. De- Deborah Francis White, who d- does the Guilty Feminist uh, podcast, so and and she's she's been to various refugee camps and and taken shows there and taken people there to see things. Um, do you have 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 you found a different way of communicating to people who are resistant to you know that what you, all of the different narratives of refugees? It seems that we haven't moved on. If if anything, it it seems to me in the UK anyway, we've taken some retrograde steps in terms of how we look at people who are in need, people who have been driven out of where they... Have you found there are certain stories where those who are most cynical to to the, the plight of refugees, that you found a way of cutting in, into that and finding a way of, of, of them seeing a fuller picture? Yeah, I think that, the, I mean, there are there are certain kinds of stories that move us regardless of what we believe. And I think those are stories without, you know, often the ones without agenda, the ones that are the most complex with all of the most baffling things, you know, like I think that's is how we learn to write as fiction writers. Like a good fiction writer isn't, doesn't, that learns to show the, the world's complexities and, and strangenesses um, without, you know, an agenda. And so I found that the stories, um, you know, that, that moved people were often had, you know, funny, bizarre things in them. Like, for example, you know, I, I often tell the story and I tell in the book about a, um, a, a strange love couple in the refugee camp that we were in, you know, where this, this couple, this married couple had come and they met this young man at the refugee camp and they were the only three Romanians. And they, you know, the three of them felt you know, bizarre love triangle. And at times the story is really funny, but at the end of the day, it's, it's heartbreaking. Like they can't, they cannot have very normal things that the rest of us have. Um, and then of course, and other stories I think that move people are the ones where, you know, you, you unexpectedly see, um, someone with a hard heart doing something just enormously generous, enormously beautiful, you know, um, just this human connection between people across the world. I think the thing that a lot of um, you know, the anti-immigration people don't realize is actually, you know, if you are, 
let's say a 50 year old doctor in, you know, a suburban the UK, you have much more in common with a 50 year old doctor in suburban Iran than you know, with your probably with your own teenage kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, 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 there is these, these moments of intense love, intense connection, helping because of some human thing that moves you um, just on the, on the side of the Western people. I think that that often moves people. And I try to include those because, um, I, I don't want the world to think that I think of Western people as villainous. I don't want to present them that way. I want to show everyone as complex. And in the same way, refugees are not, you know, they're, they're not, um, you know, they're not perfect. Everyone, we're, we're all just, you know, very kind of flawed in our own ways. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think showing that helps pe- people understand that this, this world is complex and also what an accident where we were born, right? You know? And also that no... No group of people are a monolith. There's no one thing that would define everyone who was a refugee or, every, you know, it's so, it's all the same kind of simplification, isn't it? It's oversimplification that strips us of the truth of what humanity is and how wonderful well, it is. And- there is only one way you can simplify. There's only one thing that everyone has across, every, and that's the, the need to be loved, right? That's it. Oh, yeah. That's it. And so I think that you know, is often the thing at the heart of the good stories, the stories that move, you know, it's um, uh, people unwittingly projecting that need to each other and then another person unwittingly responding. It's like the the animal within us coming out and connecting, do you know? Yeah. I want to ask you about things that you've read. I should say that Robin has been having some sort of internet drama. He's he's obviously (laughs) cut off. I hope he comes back soon. But in the meantime... I know. (laughs) But I wanted to ask I was you. Like, did you defend him? Did he <laughs> run away? <laughs> You're there saying, well, the thing is, you know, people's stories are always more interesting and beautiful than you'd think. And he's like, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I was like, I was talking about love, Robin. Come back. <laughs> no, no love. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about what you've been reading recently and what you've really enjoyed that you would recommend uh, for other people. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, this is a really good question. Um, well, maybe not so recently, but one of my favorite book of the whole year was Women Talking by Miriam Toes. And, 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 and do you know, do you know, I don't know how you pronounce that. Is it Miriam Toes? I am, I'm, I am the least expert. I wish that I knew, but I've, I, I haven't yet read it, but I've heard about it. What did you love about it? Well, I, so I loved it because it was, the, the story is about a group of, um, people in a very, very kind of religious community um, in which women are not, um, I, I, don't, I don't know the name of the community, but um, women aren't, you know, allowed to learn, um, they don't know how to read, etc. And it's based on a real life story in which like uh, a group of women in the community, all the women in the community and the girls were given animal tranquilizers and raped in the night. And um, the community barely slapped the wrist of the men who did it um so in the story in the novel these women get together in a barn and they try to kind of decide how they're going to respond are they going to to flee are they going to um kind of succumb you know like and, and continue their lives or are they going to try to exact some kind of revenge um and or like fight you know and 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 they have well, of course, they need to write down the things that they discuss. So they have one male ally who's kind of an alpha who comes in and writes for them. And it's, it's a beautiful story. But the thing that I love about it is that it, it represents the power and the strength of women who don't have the privilege 
of education like us. And it's the kind of women I've seen in the villages in Iran. I mean, it's like I have never seen power and determination like that. And it's like these are women who weren't given, you know, the kind of root of the power as we're given when we are given education. And and um, and then I kind of read it simultaneously, or not simultaneously, but very closely with um, Women in Power. Um, this was Mary Beard's book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was a, it's a wonderful little book about how, you know, historically and in literature, women are, you know, robbed of their power and silence. It's it was infuriating, but I, I absolutely loved reading it. It's really funny with things like that, where you know that the act of educating yourself about it is going to be like frustrating because. <laughs> Because you can see by the way that people are erased and by the way that sort of society is structured. But at the same time, if you don't do it, you're missing out on it. it it's such a funny thing. Yeah. I remember once, you know, sorry, no, no, please, you go on. No, no, no. You said you were going to read something. You said, tell me, tell me. Oh, no, well, basically, I remember reading a book that was called Small Acts of Resistance. And the aim of the book is to sort of give you really lovely examples. You know of- that. The author that is my friend. No way! <laughs> both, of them. both of them. So I loved it. But at the same time, it, after about three quarters of it, I start, my heart started to feel heavy because so many of the stories were like, this happened. And then just 10 years later, or it'd be like, this <laughs> happened. And the people involved were imprisoned. But, <laughs> and you just sort of go, you can't help but have to engage with the horrors of power, even when you engage with the strength of resistance. And so it's such a sort of tricky balance, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's also really scary to think of how, you know, kind of like at what point we're all indoctrinated, you know, or how early on in, in what forms it comes to us, you know, like what are the things, and that's one of the things I loved about women talking is that you saw like the things that I had have kind of imbibed that these women hadn't Mm -hmm. but then as a mother it makes me scared because you have you have a little girl right yes I do yes she's two do you not worry because I have a four-year-old daughter and I worry constantly about what I'm accidentally you know feeding her and how to make how to unlock her own personal power and unfortunately what I've done with all of my you know kind of feminist talk and talk about like you know denying her things like princesses and all of that is a complete backlash you know (laughs) the other day I asked her I said Elena tell me a story and do you know what she said she said once upon a time there was a little girl who was not clever and had no ideas and didn't want to do anything except be pretty and hang out at weddings. <laughs> oh no, I hate the setting, I hate it. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, please, like tell me the story ends like you know, in a, with this girl kind of coming to her right mind. But it was hilarious and I'm like, okay, maybe I've been too heavy handed with the child. My problem is I find it so hard not to just constantly tell my daughter how beautiful she is when it's not important to me. You know, it's not something that is a, I don't, I don't want her to think about her appearance if she, unless she really wants to. I, I, I want her just to live her life free and wild and natural. And yet, all day I'm like, my gorgeous girl, my lovely, because she's so beautiful to me. And also we're hardwired as mothers and as parents just to really enjoy them. They're so, you know, like, you, you can't not tell them how gorgeous they are. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> That's interesting too, because as a creative person, do you find? Oh, I think Robin is Robin. Are you back? Can you hear yeah. us? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. So I'm 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 keeping out of it. I'm enjoying this. Well, we're talking, but nice to relax. The thing I was going to say was, I find that my life has been, you know, based in the arts, uh, creative, performing, writing, and the the and yet. And even though I want my daughter to live her own life entirely, it is odd how much for her I love the idea of her going into STEM subjects and into things that are more seemingly grounded, I suppose. Yeah. Do you know, you know, actually, I, I have I run into a really interesting problem. I know if we're wasting our time, but anyway, whatever. I'm going to tell you this. Um, so there was a television show or on the Internet, um, like a, a show, a children's show that my daughter found called the fixies and it's very much focused on stem you know it teaches kids to be you know how things work you know how does your microwave work why does a cd you know need to be cleaned like and, and all this math and science and it's really great on that part but then as i was listening to her um you know watch it i saw randomly like i would hear accidentally things like the little boy would go up to his mother and say mom where's dad uh, uh, i have a question for him and then the mother would say um oh well you can ask me and then the boy would say no it's a really hard question so so then like I watched the show and I saw that there was like all of these little tiny little you know sexism there's subtle sexism all throughout and 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 then then I'm like I can't believe the show can but I realized it was dubbed from you know so there's cultural things from wherever it came from and so now unfortunately I've I've lost my favorite stem show I showed you, Josie, didn't I? That fantastic. There was a made in the 1960s, one of those promo films for some company about what the future was going to be like. And it's set in like, you know, 2009 when we're living on Mars, a lot of us. Yeah. And it, but it's got this great bit where it starts off and there's a guy there in a great zip up kind of top. And there's a rocket science who is, scientist who's currently working on a giant pair that will thrive in subtropical a locations. And, and it's like this beautiful thing. He's a rocket scientist. He's also working on giant fruits and then it cuts to his wife and it goes nelly homemaker wife embroiderer but it's the way that it does and it's like so even in the future and she's only an amateur embroiderer by the way i'd like to add that even in the future the imagination is still she will be placing the square plates of food in the automatic square plate of food maker and heater and it's a it's a i'll send you a link to it because it's just it's it's always an interesting thing when you you sometimes i mean i think as you know josie and and, um, me are both big fans of a lot of kind of you know, comic book stuff. And it's interesting that even in some of what would be considered to be the progressive comic book industry, you still go, wow, but still the female, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That it's been a lot harder, I think, than many people would have imagined to go. It's not even a huge leap of imagination. Look, Marie Curie is the only person to win two scientific Nobel Prizes in different disciplines. No one else has done that. Not yeah. the only woman to do that, the only person to win that. We go, yeah, 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 but maybe she had some kind of special gene that usurped all the things that meant she wanted to be a homemaker, wife, an amateur embroiderer. Well, I think erasure as well is such a big thing that we're not taught about when we're younger. The idea that, you know, you you, you go, where are the examples? And then you look and you go, oh, the examples are always here, but unless they fit the mould of, like, patriarchy, they're just disappeared quietly. 
And then the examples are gone. And then look, the only examples you can find are the ones that fit into what you, you know. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to sort of I think maintain. Kind of a, one insidious part of it that's actually kind of, I'm, I'm realizing more and more as I raise a daughter is that like, it's not so much the message that you can't be those things, you know, or that, you know, that, that those, those kind of women are exceptional as like the way they make being, you know, in love and a homemaker and all of that seem just so easy, like a kind of an easy mm. out life. And so I don't know. So I'm like, is it healthy for me to tell my daughter, you know, like, no, no, no. Marriage is not fun. <laughs> like it's not as fun as being a princess. Like marriage is like just you know, like okay, marriage is good, you know, but it's not like being a nuclear physicist. <laughs> so, so the the thing is, it's it's just like the images that we have um, are of of falling in love, marriage are so beautiful simply because it's taboo to show all the complexities of that. So, I think a lot of girls at like eighteen, nineteen start to think, okay, maybe this is easy. You know, this is the easy way to live my life. Well, and also. I, it wasn't until I had children that I fully appreciated how much easier work is than childcare. It's so much easier and more pleasurable to go to work as long as you have a job that you do like. And I appreciate that that is a privilege in itself. But yeah. like, it's so much easier to go to a job that that suits you or that appreciates you in some way yeah. than it is to do childcare. And I feel like that in itself must have been a thing that men knew forever <laughs> didn't want to sort of give up yeah exactly. well and I also it's just with childcare. it's like isn't it doesn't it make sense that like every other kind of work that you are born suited to something or you're not that like that sh should also be a specialist thing as as you know I guess it is now when we, we have childcare professionals that are very very happy to be you know yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really well, good at it take an entire gender and say this is the one job that suits you whereas like there's thousands of jobs but anyway, now we're getting off track. I this this there's no track, just so you know. Yeah, just in case you track. imagine there was a track, there isn't one. Okay. If, if anything, we're in danger of being far too on track earlier because normally we're not as organized. <laughs> now I I was you know because we nearly run out of time, but when when you were growing up, with a we normally ask people about also their and you might have done this already, Josie, so I apologize if you have while I was shouting at my computer and my leads and plugging things in and pulling them out and watching various different small fires starting in my attic. <laughs> um, but the uh, um, did you have certain writers that no. helped you as well that when you were growing up, those kind of the, 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 those authors that you thought here is here is a blanket, here is something to hold on to with their words? Yeah. Well, um, as a when I was a um, kid, you know, a lot of the literature was was censored, and and I, I left quite young. I left at the time uh, when I was when I was eight years old and about to be nine. And then so many years were taken up by this like learning English. Uh, so I, I read a lot of books in uh, you know in Oklahoma when we were at the age of ten that were just focused on on increasing my vocabulary and all of that stuff. So I didn't really fall in love with any stories yet, the way I had been with the children's books I had back in Iran. Many of them, by the way, were, were banned. Um, but but you know. Um, I, I think that I truly fell in love with English and American literature. I was already in my twenties, and and I um, there's so many people that I, I like: uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, Marilyn Robinson, Chang Ray Lee. Um, a lot of them were, you know, outsiders. I, I, I oh, gosh, I love Lydia Davis, Alice Munro. Um, I love um, kind of. I, I guess I, I read a lot of short stories because I enjoy short stories, and I write, you know, short stories. I think better than anything. That's 
I guess what I believe about my own writing. So um, I really enjoy watching you know, a really skilled writer crack open an entire life, an entire, you know, I don't know, decades in just a few pages and just a glimpse in somebody's life, you know, at a particular moment. And, you know, Lydia Davis does that and, 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 and Alice Monroe. Um, let's see, what else? Who else? I, um, oh my gosh, a, a few years ago, I read a wonderful book of short stories called um, uh, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere by Zizi Packer. Have you read it? No. Yeah, it's a book of short stories. And I read this many, many years ago, but I find that like, there's a story in there called Brownies, which I often come back to again and again and again. Um, it, it's, a, it's a story about a um, um, a troop of Girl Scouts, you know, and they're kind of, they're a troop of black Girl Scouts and they go on a, um, on a little field trip. And um, I don't want to give away kind of the ending, but they're they come to heads with another Girl Scout troop. And it's got to do with race and, and a lot of other issues, which if I say, I will give away the <laughs> really incredible ending, you know. But, but it's one of those short stories that I use a lot when I, when I teach. And, and, um, and same with oh, Jhumpa Lahiri stories, too. I, I try to, um, you know, I, I try to read a lot of, of short stories about being an outsider, being on the outside of something, because they, they speak to me. I really love them. I think as well, f for me, what I love about short stories is it's the most poetic kind of prose you can get because it's so like a poem. It's like an instant, a memory, a thought. It doesn't have to be a big narrative. It doesn't have to be so uh, involved. It can be like a, a, a gasp. Yes. Like, yeah, it's really important. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I was, I, I, I um, this is, um, kind of a little bit of a shameless plug, but in, um, it, it, it just while the lockdown was happening, the New York times came up with this really wonderful project called the Decameron project in which they asked short story writers of today to write short stories born out of lockdown. Um, just like, you know, the Decameron stories that were born out of the plague, you know? And so, um, they're publishing those next month and I did one of those and it's, um, yeah, and I think I, as I was writing that, I realized I um, this is really one of the best forms in which to address this, you know, this moment of, like, complete solitude. Because every, my favorite teacher in my MFA program, his name is Charlie Baxter, he said that a really good short story is one in which, you know, you capture a moment where the world shifts on its axis and nothing is ever the same. And from reading those few pages, you can know everything that happened before and everything that will likely happen after, you know? It's that nugget, it's that perfect moment. And what a time this is for us to do that. Like for a lot of people, this lockdown is that nugget, that moment of realization. You know, marriages have ended, relationships have ended. People have decided they're not doing the right thing for them. You know, they're not doing, or like for, you know, people like me or in my story, you know, it can trigger past, you know, past confinements. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and then, you know, do a similar thing to you or make you stronger or weaker. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know what I was saying before, but now I'm going to end on an abrupt. <laughs> yeah. hey, I'm so, so interested. Um, as well, I think so much that I like literally don't have a place to end. And I'm like I'm buzzing over something to land on. Let me just jump in because I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. I, I was thinking about um, because... When I try and write, a, I'm a comedian, mainly a stand-up comedian, and when I try and write a stand-up show that's longer, I always try and think, well, okay, well, what do I 
how do I summarize what I think about the world? How do I summarize where I think I'm going? It's always tends to rely on what I think is actually imaginary, but some imagined sense that I know what will happen or I understand things. And I think, yeah, you can't write a novel about lockdown now because you, we don't know what the future is. We don't know how things will work out. And we're, nobody has that power, really. And it will be fluke if anyone guesses right. Where it's exactly the short story saying, in this moment, these things are happening. It's, it's perfect. perfect. It's the yeah. only way to rationalize it, I think. Exactly. And it doesn't matter what will happen now. It's, it's somehow contained in that story. Isn't that yeah. just fabulous? I love, I love that. I love the immediacy of short stories. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know who's a good short story writer? Oh my gosh, I just, I realized this. Do you know Miley Malloy? No, I don't. I'll, also, this is so good because this is literally what I'm working on at the moment is trying to write some short stories. And I'm like so excited to get to read other people's because my knowledge is so basic. It's like, I love Raymond Carver. Yeah. <laughs> Ride or die. I keep I keep gravitating toward those short stories from just the last 20 years because, you know, it, it's exciting to read what comes out of now, you know? Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, what, um, but there was actually a really wonderful short story that I read in one of the anthologies. I, I read um, the O. Henry Prize stories and the Best American Short Stories. Oh, yeah, um, Best American. Yeah, and they always have really, you know, you discover awesome new writers, but there was this story by, I believe, Danielle Evans a couple of years ago. And I, I gosh, I, I wish I could remember the name of the story, but I'm just remembering it on the spot now. It, 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 but it was, it was about this um, young lady in a college who is um you know she's white and she goes out with this guy and she act on a boat out of necessity accidentally quote unquote wears a confederate flag bikini <laughs> and like and of course the 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 kind of hellstorm that comes from this and the people that it hurts and all of that stuff i thought the story is so thoughtfully and gracefully and lovingly and just creatively like made that i just like afterwards i'm like damn Damn, that was good. I'm just taking notes with my left hand on all the things that you're recommending, even though we do tend to recommend things on the list as well on our... Um, oh, and we've got Trent. What Trent knows what's what. What just happened? So that's that's Trent, Trent speaking to us, call. yeah. Trent, you're magic. Boys go to Jupiter is a story. That's but yeah, we, we do tend to do reading list recommendations at the end as well. But, but I'm still like, hold on, I'm just taking some notes here. Um, oh that's great we've we've pretty much run out of time so we will uh um i've, I've apologized to everyone if you just heard general my main contribution today has been uh, the sound of the microphone bumping and various other uh conflagrations so i apologize for that uh and uh i mentioned the ungrateful refugee uh, dean's book is out now you can go get it now. It's from Canongate, and uh, and it is very much uh, worth your time. And uh, there's so many, so many different things in it. So many different things that you will take away uh, from it. Um, so thank you. So and and, I'm, and when, when is the the children's book out as well? You mentioned the the the, the children's book. Is that that's next year? Oh yeah, that, that's next year. I think probably early 2021. It's a it's a you know picture books with photographs of children um, set to an imagined narrative. You know. Cool. In, which, in which the the camp, the waiting place, is its own villain. Um, and thank you so much. It's been so exciting to talk to you. And thanks for sharing all your recommendations. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
No, that was brilliant. Thank you. And uh, we should tell everyone that all the, the different authors that have been mentioned, that will also be up underneath this uh, and it'll be on the Cosmic Shambles site. So if you miss any names, if you suddenly think, oh, guy couldn't find a pen, uh, we'll put them all up there. Dina, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, Josie, what are you off to do now? Well, it's Johnny, my partner's birthday. So I'm going home and about three people are going to sit in the front garden. It's going to be the most exciting party we've had in years i imagine and what are you going to do with those nineteen thousand eight hundred and fifty three words that you didn't manage to get out that came to you just before we started doing this well I'm, i might try and take 10 minutes just to like <laughs> but, uh, yeah you've never I, looked more like uh, jack nicholson from the shining than no, you did right now concentrating faces like or my tongue is usually out so i was like no no, no it was, it, was just, it was the typing fingers it was nothing else it was nothing <laughs> else thank you so much everyone for uh for listening to this uh go uh patreon as you know uh cosmic shambles and book shambles we have uh patreon sites there and uh do keep in contact with us if there's uh, different people you would like us to interview there's uh, loads of show and tells uh coming up a lot of fun with uh, rebecca front and chris addison and uh we've got alice roberts coming up uh very soon on the show and tell as well and loads more book shambles as well thanks very much bye-bye thank you very much for listening thank you to our patreon supporters welcome to our new patreon supporters patreon.com slash book shambles where you can go to support the show back next week with another new episode joined by two guests on next week's show we'll be chatting to gaia vince author of transcendence and dave copland uh, author of rise of the humans until then, take care, stay safe. And, oh, actually, as I stay, stay safe, uh, if you would like some more information, uh, some kind of nuts and bolts science about COVID-19, we've just done a new episode of a uh, COVID-19 experts Q&A panel. That's on the Cosmic Shambles YouTube channel hosted by Robin with uh, immunologists and disease, uh, mathematical modelers of disease and microbiologists and that sort of thing. So you can check that out. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman.